Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to two places in Scripture. The first is John chapter 13, beginning in verse 34. John 13, verse 34. And just hold your place there and also find Galatians 2, 20. John 13, 34 and Galatians 2, 20. And hear these words. This is Jesus speaking and he says... I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then from Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I I do not nullify the grace of God for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Will you pray with me? God, in this moment of worship, we recognize that every moment of this week is, is always squeezed by what has just been accomplished and what still waits ahead. Our lives seem to be squeezed between the already and the not yet. There, there, there's always one distraction after the next, one obligation, one responsibility after the next for which your, your people can be so devoted and so focused. And in this moment, we simply pray for the grace of some sacred space to reflect on the powerful and transforming words of Holy Scripture, to consider what it means that we are crucified with you, to think about what it means that it is no longer we who live, but you who live in us. Show us how to worship and in our worship 
imagine the truth of your words that we are known by our love. Show us what this means today so that being here will have mattered. In the name of Christ, the Lord of life, amen. Amen. The truth that carries us from week to week in this series, you just heard again on, on the video. The church is intended to be the visible presence of the risen Christ. We are intended to be nothing more than, nothing less than, nothing other than the visible presence of the risen Christ in this world. We are supposed to be the evidence that he is alive. And the only way the world will know that God's love is a love that overcomes even the shadow of death itself. The only way the world will know that the, the power of the resurrection is true and available for all mortals is not by what crafty way we can think to articulate it with our words, but rather what simple and authentic and believable ways we can demonstrate it with our lives. We are the only evidence <laughs> that he is alive. So we've been saying things like, you know, being the body of Christ. Well, this is our why behind our what. This is, as I said a couple of weeks ago, the thing behind the thing in everything that we do. And I can't, I can't overemphasize, though I'll try, I can't overemphasize how important it is that we grasp this, that we as a church understand the significance of this statement. That the church is intended to be God's hoped for life. This is intended to be the life that God hopes for as we exist with one another here on earth. We are intended to embody all of the teachings and the virtues and the ethics and the, the personhood of Jesus in the way that we behave with one another. So much so to the extent that when the world around us sees us, they think him. When the world around us sees us, they think him. That's the goal. The question I must ask you as your pastor and, and, and co-laborer in the gospel, as one who's making the same sojourn that you're making, when they see us, do they think Christ? When they see us, do they think Christ? When your parents see you, do they think Christ? When your children see you, do they think Christ? When your coworker, your, your neighbor, your boss, <laughs> your in-law, when they see you, do they think Christ? In Scripture, we are given the image of the body of Christ to help us understand what it means to exist with one another as we embody all of the character of Jesus in this, in this world, the very life of Jesus. But there's another image that's shared. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about the bride of Christ. 
Now we're talking about a very intimate image. The bride of Christ. The, the church is intended to be the bride of Christ. This image of two becoming one. And God uses this image to demonstrate or to express what's possible with humanity and divinity in a holy union with one another. In the same way that divinity and humanity were one in Christ, Christ believes that same union with God is available right here and now in what's called the church. This is what he prayed about the last time he had a chance to pray before he was arrested. On that night, he offered these words in the garden. He said to the Father, my prayer is not for them alone, talking about the 12 who were still inside digesting the food that they had just eaten from the last supper. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Guess who that is? Us. That all of them may be one, Father. Just as you in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Think about that for just a moment. The glory, the essence, the Shekinah, the, the sense of God's own light and personhood and power that you gave me, I have given them. I have given them the glory that you have given me that they may be one as we are one, I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus believes that the very same union of divinity and humanity that merged and became one in him is possible in the worldwide body of Christ called the church. He prayed for it. He prayed that we would understand the significance of what it means that God desires to live in us and to animate our lives with his very presence. Now, Jesus believed that the resurrection that you and I confess is this kind of inner aliveness, I'll say. I've described it that way before. That Jesus believes that in the church there can be this inner aliveness, a dynamic, living, breathing oneness with the divine. And I just want us to sit on that for just a moment. I mean, we say that that sounds like something that preachers should say in church, right? That sounds very religious. It sounds very churchy. I just want you to sit with that for just a moment and consider the significance of this in your living room at home. At your kitchen table at home. And your lonely commute to work in your car. That Jesus believed and prayed that there would be an inner aliveness, a dynamic, living, breathing oneness with the divine that you and I experience. And in that union, guess what? We end up doing things that he would do, not because we think they're good ideas, not so that we can somehow behave well and make him proud, but no, when we are aware of the union we have with Christ in this body of believers, we do things that he would do, not because we're trying to be good little boys and girls and make the Father proud, but rather because he's living in us and he's living through us and the things that we do in his name, it's, 
It's him doing them through us. So it's him forgiving the one who is hard for you to forgive. It's, it's he who is compassionate to the one who you don't have much time to stop and help along the way. It's he being merciful through you to those who are in need of mercy. You see how the, the, the power of this truth you and I have to grasp because that's what it means to be the church. And I know we have so many wonderful ways to understand and define and describe what it means to be the church in the world today, but that at the heart is what it's all about. You and I have the capacity to live as the body of Christ in which divinity and humanity meet and some amazing and beautiful life gets to unfold. But the question I have, <laughs> the question I have, is that what the world thinks of when they think of church? I mean, is, is that what they think of when they think of church folks? I mean, when they see church folks or they hear about church folks or they perhaps hear about uh, religious people on TV, <laughs> Is the first thing that comes to their mind, oh, those are the people with an inner aliveness, a dynamic, living, breathing oneness with the divine. My guess is it's probably not. You know, years ago, the mayor of New York was Ed Koch. Remember Ed Koch? He was mayor. He died in, in 2013, but he was mayor um, a couple decades ago for, for about 12 years and he had an interesting habit. He would go around the city of New York talking to normal folks, regular folks, and asking them about, about uh, their lives and about how life in the city uh, was going. And he had one standard question that became his trademark question. Do you remember what it was? Yeah. So how am I doing? Isn't that great? So how am I doing? And they'd tell him how he's doing. So how am I doing, right? As a pastor, a Christian pastor, in the 21st century, in America, right now, when I am aware that the church can be this place where you experience an inner aliveness, this place where you can experience a dynamic, living, breathing oneness with the divine, when I'm aware of what the church can be, I sometimes want to walk around outside the church and ask some folks on the streets who are not churchgoers, who are unbelievers, I want to ask them, so how are we doing? So how are we doing? Because my guess is, in some places we're doing spectacularly. <laughs> but in many places, I fear what we may hear in return. If this is the life Jesus said is possible, an inner aliveness, a dynamic, living, breathing oneness with the divine, <laughs> and we ask the world outside this place to describe what they think when they think of church, my guess is we would not get the same answer. So this morning, I want to talk to you about a couple of things. I came across a report a couple of weeks ago that has just, it has just left me gobsmacked. It has left me uh, still trying to in interpret and understand the significance. It is the scuttlebutt of all the talk among clergy friends of mine. It is a, is a report that has come out by the group is called Public Religion Research Institute. The PRRI is a, a group of researchers, surveyors, those who study us, right? And they've come up with a report that is this pretty stunning. Now, the PRRI is a group similar to Gallup, the Barna Group, 
the Pew Research uh, Institute. These are groups with the utmost integrity that are trustworthy and reliable. And I say that because, you know, there are groups that can produce all kinds of data to make the data say what they want it to say. And you have to be careful about that. This is not one of those groups. This group, along with the ilk of the others, the Pew Research Foundation, the Gallup group, uh, the Barna group, they have put out, the PRRI has put out a report that just released in, in September. And their objective is to report on the habits and patterns, the, the, uh, the trends of religious life in America. The trends of religious life in America. The name of their report is actually sobering itself. It's called Exodus. Why Americans are leaving religion and why they are unlikely to come back. Yeah, take a moment to just judge a book by the cover. Yeah. So I rarely share with you statistics because they're just boring. But I want to share some stats today because they help inform the conversation that I want us to have about, so how are we doing? Because we have this image, this body image, the image of what the Christ, the Christian church can be, this inner aliveness, this place where you experience a dynamic living, breathing oneness with the divine. But if we pay attention to those we are trying to reach, we may hear some sobering news. Their specialty in this report is to focus on a group of folks that they refer to in their report as the religiously unaffiliated. The unaffiliated. These are folks who do not affiliate with any particular group or religion, right? And in other places, we have referred to those people as the nuns. And when I use the word nun, I don't mean these guys, okay? Right? I mean, I mean these guys, the N-O-N-E-S. Because for decades now, if you've been able to fill out a report about yourself, hey, tell us about you. Are you male, uh, female? Are you married, single? Your religion? Are you Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim? And at the bottom, there's usually an other box that says none. Those who are checking the none box, it's the fastest growing box. Let me give you an example. In 1991, only 6% of Americans identified themselves as unaffiliated, the nuns. By the end of the 90s, that number had grown to 14%. By 2012, the nuns identified themselves at 20% of the American population. Today, 25% of the American population identifies themselves as nuns, as unaffiliated. One quarter unaffiliated, making them, depending on how you define the terms, a Protestant, Catholic, you know, each group, the, the largest religious group in America, according to the study, according to their definitions, the largest substrata, subgroup in America, the nuns. It gets even more stunning, more sobering when you take the study and you harness it down, you focus down to what they said about young adults. And later today, I may post this. You can read the entire report yourself. The young adults, they define as 18 years old to 29. Some of you know some of those folks. Some of you are those folks. And in the 18 to 29 group, did you know that four out of 10 
young adults in that definition, 39% are nuns. Another staggering report is that that's three times the number of senior adults who are nuns. The senior adults, there are 13% of senior adults who identify with no affiliation, right? They're unaffiliated. That's three times. And you say to yourself, well, that's normal. Usually in the 20s, there's a searching period you go through. You kind of reject the religion of your childhood. There's a period in which you're unaffiliated. Yes, that's always been the case across history. But here's the troubling news. Today, our young adults in that age group are four times more likely to be unaffiliated than they were one generation ago. In other words, in 1986, 10% of the population was unaffiliated. Today, it's nearly 40%. Not only that, but there is another dynamic that is pointed out in this, I guess, this, um, this report that comes out. It's called switching. Switching is the term that's used to describe where these people come from because the vast majority of the unaffiliated, those who, have, who are nuns, the vast majority are coming from religions where they, they were part of a religion growing up but have switched and walked away from it. The vast majority. In fact, here are some numbers for you to consider. One out of every five American. leaves their religion of their early childhood to become a nun, to become an N-O-N-E. One in five are leaving the faith. 19% of the population leaving the faith. They're switching. And most of the switching, as we learned, happens by the time they're 18 years old. In fact, here's the number on that. Most become, most switch to become um, Yeah, more than 6 out of 10, 62% of the nuns that we have become nuns by their 18th birthday. I just want to stop there for a moment. If I'm not painting the picture colorfully enough, let me just go to the palette again. By 18, you do know that any moment now, in the next 5, 10 minutes, if they're not already here, we have, um, I don't know how many, how many, 95? 95 students coming home from a retreat. Do you know why they go on retreat? Do you know why they do the things they do? Why Kep and his army, army of adult volunteers invest themselves in chocolate pudding warfare? Yeah. It's because while that's happening, they're investing in the lives and hearts and minds of these students so that this statistic they cannot claim as their own. More than six out of ten of the nuns today become nuns by the time they're 18 they are switching at that rate and there is a retention rate that we have to pay attention to and the study says that those who start out nuns basically stay nuns in the 1970s one-third or 34 percent of those who were raised as nuns in other words your family had no religious back those who were raised as nuns one out of three remain nun as adults in the 1990s it grew to half 53% of those who were raised none stayed none. Today, it's two-thirds. If you're raised none, there's a 66% chance you will stay none, and it gets even more sobering if you're under 50 years old. If you're under 50 years old and you were not raised in the church, you're raised a nun, you are 74% chance that you will remain a nun. 
Those are staggering, staggering statistics. But what's more moving, more stunning to me is the big question, which is what? Why? And the the report listed, oh, a, a long list of many, many reasons. And I'll just name the top six that made it in the report. The number one reason 60% of those who are nuns became nuns because they stopped believing in the teachings of their religion. Stop there for just a moment. In a moment, we're going to come back to this one. They stopped believing in the teachings of their religion, right? Let's just blow through a couple of these other ones too. Number two, 32% of the nuns said it was because their family was never really religious growing up. The third top reason was because some have experienced negative religious teachings about or treatment of gay and lesbian people. 29% have uh, switched out of the faith because of observations on how uh, people were treated. Number four, why? Because clergy sexual abuse scandals. 19 people cited those, the, the indiscretions, the, the scandals, the sin of clergy. Number five, Others included a traumatic event in their life at 18%. And finally, 16% said they left because the church or the religion was too focused on politics. Yeah, yeah. But of all the reasons to leave, and the report goes on to describe all the other factors, factors like a divorce and how religiously mixed marriages affect that status and, and race and ethnicity and gender and, and education level. It goes on and on and on. But the most, the most compelling for me was that number one reason why people are switching. And this, this is what I want us to consider today as the church, as the body of Christ. The number one reason people are leaving is because they stopped believing in the teachings of their religion. And can we just talk a moment, pastor and people, about the, the significance of that statement? They stopped believing in the teachings of their religion. From the moment I read that, I, I have not known what to do with that. I've been thinking about that and anguishing about that. The teachings of their religion. Stop believing the teachings of the, And I began to ask myself, some questions. Well, what teachings are we talking about? I mean, because I get it if, you know, if the nuns believe that sometimes what we sell is, a, is part of our religion, is, a, is part of it, but sometimes we add on to the teachings. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, sometimes the teachings that we, that we herald as teachings of Jesus were never in the mouth of Jesus. And Jesus would never endorse. And I can get it. I get it if, if, if there is a nun who rejects it and says, well, if being a Christian means I have to buy all of that, then I'll just get rid of all that. But that, that's not rejecting the teachings of... See, I wonder what teachings of Jesus are so deplorable that they're worth walking away from. Because, beloved, the teachings of our religion... They are nothing more than, less than, or other than the teachings of Jesus... Jesus. So I'm asking myself, oh, oh, I get it. Maybe it's that whole, dear friends, let us love one another for love is from God. I mean, is it that? What's so deplorable about, or what, it, what's so difficult about love your neighbor as you love yourself? I mean, is it that? Is there something that is so off-putting about 
forgive others as you have been forgiven. I mean, is there something so vile about Jesus saying, you have heard it said, uh, love your neighbor but hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, that's, that's pretty tough. I'll give you that. Is it tough enough to... What? Or, or is it you have two coats and you notice that your brother has no coat? Give one of your coats to your brother. I mean, is it that teaching? That's the teaching of our religion. The teaching of our religion is if you see someone who is hungry, give them food. If you see someone who's thirsty, give them a drink. If you meet a stranger, welcome them in. If someone is sick, care for them. If someone is in prison, visit them. Those are the teachings of Jesus. What could possibly be worth rejecting in any of that? And yet the more I study on that and think on that and meditate upon those those things, beloved, it occurs to me, it's not the teachings of Jesus that are the problem. The problem is not the teaching of Jesus. The problem is the inability of Christians to live out those teachings in ways that are authentic and believable in the world today. I will never forget, and nor do I want to forget, the words of Brennan Manning. (laughs) He has these words to say, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny deny him by their lifestyles. (laughs) That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And when I hear that one out of every five Americans is walking away from the religion of their childhood, rejecting the religion of their their, their childhood, their religious teachings, it occurs to me that they're not rejecting the teachings of Jesus. They're not rejecting their religious teachings. They're rejecting a disembodied version of them. A disembodied version of them because somehow, I don't know how, but we have gradually taught ourselves that we'll take the teachings of Jesus and we'll honor them. Oh, and we'll celebrate them and we'll sing songs about them. We'll even call them golden, like a golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do. And then we'll treat it like everything else we own this gold and we'll put it on a shelf and we'll polish it. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a great, isn't that a great teaching? That wonderful, and we leave it on the shelf where it belongs. And then, and then we pay close attention to all the convictions and morals and, and teachings and, and virtues of all the other groups that we're involved in. And we take on their morality and their ethics and their convictions, and then we dump them into the teachings of Jesus to where we can't distinguish the difference. And when the world rejects the whole, they think they're rejecting Jesus, but They're really rejecting the add-ons. Are you with me? When one in five leave the teachings, they're leaving a disembodied version of those teachings. I love Peter Rollins. Peter Rollins is a theologian and a a speaker. I mean, he's an edgy guy. And then one day at a conference, he was doing a a Q&A. 
And he was talking about Jesus all night long, but he hadn't said anything about the resurrection. And somebody in the crowd said, uh, Peter, I haven't heard you talk about the resurrection. Do you deny the resurrection? Or do you deny the resurrection? And he thought about it for a moment, and then he gave the perfect answer. The perfect answer. He said, absolutely I deny the resurrection. Yes, I deny the resurrection every time I ignore someone who is hungry or thirsty or a stranger or sick or in prison. I deny the resurrection every time I choose to be arrogant rather than humble. Every time I choose to be greedy rather than generous. I deny the resurrection because if we're going to be people of the resurrection, it doesn't mean that we have the right words to describe theologically what it means that there is a resurrection. It means that our lifestyle demonstrates the aliveness of God. In the way we live. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. And that is why it is time for the church to wake up. It is time for us to awaken to new levels of awareness of the power that is in our pews. And the power that is in our hearts. And it begins with confession. We begin by confessing, Lord, I am sorry that I have attempted to live a disembodied faith. I have attempted to play church. I have attempted to come and go through the motions and go through the routine. And I will sing when they say sing. And I will stand and sit down when they say stand and sit down. And I'll do the thing that I think is necessary to be, to be faithful to you. But when I leave this place, I confess to you that in 10,000 ways... I deny the opportunity for you to live through me with the way that I love other people. I confess it, forgive me. And show me now how to live an embodied life. Show me how to lay my life before you so that my life becomes a platform for you to demonstrate your glory. Show me how to so humble my life before you and submit to a way of life that you showed me that I glorify you in everything I do. There may be no more powerful way to end this, this day than with the words that began it, the words of Jesus. Jesus offers these words, I give you a new commandment. In other words, it comes down to this. It's not complex. It's not overcomplicated. It's simple. Here it is. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So my encouragement to you this day, beloved, is love. Love. In the name of Jesus, love. Let's pray. God, open the eyes of our hearts that we may see, that we may see the, the potential of truly welcoming you and surrendering our lives before you. Show us what it could look like and then give us the courage to actually yield to it. We pray that your spirit would move through this room like a mighty rushing wind. Infuse within the hearts and minds of your people a passion, a desire 
to embody you in this world. And may it begin now. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.